ruler of the earth, the king of the world. Open wide the gates of hell and come forth from your blessed abyss. All hail, unholy father. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I am not your regular host, Adam Campbell, but your stand-in host, Jesse, of I Dream of Jesse. This is our second special satanic witch episode, and I'm glad you're here now checking it out. The Satanic Witch by Anton Zandler Levey was published in 1970 with the title The Complete Witch, or What to Do When Virtue Fails. It is currently, in my opinion, the book on lesser magic. Joining me today to discuss this book are three wickedly awesome witches, High Priestess of the Church of Satan, Magistrate Peggy Dramia. How are you doing today, Peggy? I'm doing great. Hope everyone else is, too. Witch Zaftig of Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig is joining us today. Hello from Norway. <laughs> and Aaron from Down at the Crossroads. How are you doing, Aaron? Super duper. All right. Well, thank you, ladies, for taking part in this episode. Uh, thank you. Let's jump right into it. Those fingers in my hair That sly come hither stare That strips my conscience bare It's witchcraft So, this book is 44 years old, and I think that raises a justifiable question of whether or not any of it's outdated. Now, before you go telling me, no, it's not outdated, and <laughs> let's move on to the next question, let me throw out one possible example here. Because LeVay wrote it at a time when women were going from garter belts and stockings to pantyhose. And he points out, quite rightly, that pantyhose are not sexy, and <laughs> garter belts are, and that by wearing a garter belt, you could get away with looking like it you didn't mean for it to show because it's outdated fashion. But nowadays, the only time you see somebody even advertising a garter belt and stockings is when it's meant to look like a show, when it's meant to be sexy. So is it still possible to apply something like that with the law of the forbidden in mind? Or, you know, to count as a counterexample, you take a lacy red brassiere, which at the time LeVay was writing, this would have been only meant for show. And now that's just standard fare at J.C. Penney's. So could you bend over and expose a red brassiere and make that look less intentional than bending over and exposing a garter belt and hose? I think some of the specifics might be outdated, but the principle is definitely still there. I mean, you'd have to adjust a little bit for uh, our changing times and things women wear now. But certainly a white standard grandma garter belt is still not going to look like you're supposed to see that. And certainly nude or tan stockings add to that. But, you know, it'd still work. It works for any stocking color, I think, as long as you've got that slightly dirty looking, possibly frayed old garter belt that's <laughs> not it's not the kind you're supposed to see as uh, Magistra Ruth likes to call it. It's not sportswear. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely like go shopping in uh, some some grandma underwear catalogs and you'll find those old. <laughs> hospital equipment looking garter belts and if somebody catches a glimpse of that i'm pretty sure they're 
they're not gonna think they're supposed to be seeing that old thing there <laughs> um as for like bras uh, the way these young ladies display their bra straps now it's part of the outfit so i don't even know how you display a bra strap unwittingly unless again it looks a little dirty frayed <laughs> knotted you know it's unless it looks like something you, you'd really rather cover up you know, I see young girls, and I, I really do think the bra strap's part of the, the whole en- ensemble. So, yeah, but adjust accordingly. Yeah, I have. I, I recently saw in a catalog a bra advertised as, this is one you'll want to show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, well, they have, um, uh, I think I saw a catalog, like, decorations for your bra straps. <laughs> like, like special ones that you can add on with, like, rhinestones and stuff, because they're supposed to show. Hmm. There so, you go. Yeah. So, which Zaftig, is there anything you would add to that? I uh, like to match my bras to my camisoles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I have uh, in the past, you know, had favorite bras that I worn down till I had to pin them. And I'm not necessarily proud of that, but I can say that um, when I was wearing them, or it actually, it's not something I would have wanted to display, like my pinned up, ratty, nasty bra. But if it offered good support, I'm rather heavy chested. So um, I just didn't want to give it up. But it was really kind of an interesting topic of conversation when. It was shown, either purposely or accidentally. <laughs> Here's me with my pinned bra. I don't know if it's necessarily law of the forbidden or the absurdity of underwear um, that's meant to be sexy, but I can say that no one, it never went unnoticed. I find, well, as uh, Magistrate Najramia mentioned, the granny underwear really sexy if it's tan or white. And to me, that's very much still the forbidden, even though the colors themselves are tame, the fact that most uh, young women go for the outright sexy and so overt red, purple, and they're great, I have some myself, but in order to find some of these more vintage looking ones, uh, that's less common. So the, the less common it is, then it falls into that realm of forbidden because you don't see it as often. Very true. Um, Aaron, did you want to add anything, either either on the stockings and brassieres or even on the, the idea that any of this is outdated? Well, I definitely think that most people that are reading The Satanic Witch are probably smart enough to do their own sort of on-the-fly internal updating of some of the details, as Peggy was saying. I don't think, you know, we have to get more mired up in the details of it. So, no, I don't think anything cries out for updating except for maybe the little things, but you know, I would like to argue that I think pantyhose can be sexy <laughs> um, as a wearer of pantyhose on a pretty re- regular basis. Blasphemy. But... Blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could wear yeah. them without underwear. So then it's like super oh. sexy. Yeah. Well, I don't understand people who wear underwear with pantyhose, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> we'll talk about that offline. But I used I to do... see a lot of transvestite hookers wearing them. Panties and pantyhose? Pantyhose without any outer clothes. Ooh. That was oh. a New York City thing. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a New York City thing. Yes. But I would I would argue that the sort of, you know, the granny underwear, things like that, it or the fact that girls are just wearing their bras as tops these days, um, as I sound like someone's grandma. But I think the 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 sort of 
enticement comes with the contrast. Like I wear fairly businessy attire. I work in a library, so you know, picture that. So if I do if I am wearing like a red bra under my library clothes, then then it is still there, you know? I I think that it's true that it is be, you know becoming sort of watered down because girls are just going half naked these days but if you're hiding it under something that looks like a nun's habit or if it looks like you know something a librarian wears then that that's where the enticement comes i think that actually reminds me of um oh i that, that would be goldberg movie where she's supposed to be a nun i can't think of the name sister of it. act yeah i've never seen the movie but i just remember the cover of it you know she's dressed in a habit and lifting one edge of it up just enough that you can make out a red pump <laughs> the same idea it's just whoa that, that you know yeah. a red pump on anybody else eh. but a red pump on a nun whoa yeah so um, exactly so going back to uh which zaftig and her safety pin hold up bra <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's let, yeah let's talk about that some more <laughs> yeah <laughs> levay describes the virtue of embarrassment for drawing energy towards you and I was going to ask you guys if you had any tips for producing embarrassment or tales of accidental embarrassment that work for you. And that sounds like that kind of falls down that same avenue. So I was just wondering, I mean, anything else like that or any more comments you wanted to make on that? Um, I'd like to just start myself by saying that I don't find I have to generate that. It's not something I have to work on. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say, too. Yeah, the embarrassment factor, I, I tend to just kind of go with it. Uh, it as much as I like, as I feel like I'm not a prude, I actually am really embarrassed when I talk about sex and certain things. And that's one of the reasons why I joke about it so much is because I find it absurd in many ways. I find the not just the act, but the entire dance around it, the sort of display, uh, both men and women, the entire, it's exciting, but the entire process is, has lots of absurdity to it. And so it kind of embarrasses me at this, at this profound level, not out of shame or that I think it's immoral or wrong, not in the least, but it's, it's the absurdity of it that makes me kind of laugh. So I don't find I have to work on that. Uh, naturally, I always feel shy when I'm even flirting or engaging in sexual activity. Uh, it just it just happens, and I've learned to uh, not try to suppress it. Just sort of go with it and let it show, and that that works for me. When I fight against it, it uh, it works against me. Okay, um, Aaron, you were starting to say that you're kind of in the same boat. <laughs> well, I was just thinking that I very rarely have to invent embarrassment because for me it's more about harnessing my natural inclination to say dumb shit and fall down a lot but you know there are moments when you make the most of it that's what I do and you know I don't invent embarrassment often I mean of course I've done it once or twice here and there but for the most part it's just about recognizing that this is a situation that you can exploit and then exploiting it. Peggy did you have anything you wanted to add either about yourself or about other witches you've known? About the embarrassment factor. Yeah, um, you know, trying to get yourself to feel it in order to bring about the reaction in others. You know, I don't really have a lot on that topic. As you know, I'm a little older than the rest of you, and I'm more in the cookie lady category now. But I, I do tend to, um, I can feign helplessness once in a while to, to make things easier in public. Sometimes I'll just... Like, oh my goodness, I'm so confused. I don't know where anything is. And I usually get someone to come out and escort me to, to exactly where I want to go and help me and 
give me extra assistance and service. So that that tends to be what I use it for these days. It's not exactly embarrassment so much as unless you're embarrassed at being helpless. But of course, I'm just faking it. So. Oh, see, now I'm a natural at the helplessness and I'm not even faking it. I just I, I get clueless in public and people come to my rescue. Thankfully, yeah, that's great. <laughs> Bewitched, bothered and bewildered Am I So LeVay wrote, Anything that cannot or will not gain acceptance, if presented seriously, will always be accepted if properly presented as a joke. So... I would like to hear about any time that you've made a joke of some lesser magic endeavor or if you've seen anybody else do this successfully that you could use as an example. I did a little magical, uh, lesser magical working when I, years ago when I started in a new department um, at the company I was working for and I, I was working with a lot of men and I had to kind of get them all on my side and get them to sort of accept me so I did this this crazy little thing where I brought in a bag of toy gumbies <laughs> and I walked around and I gave everybody a gumby and I, I made a big joke about it like everybody needs a gumby and it was a really interesting social experiment because of course like they were looking at me like I was a little <laughs> crazy but then after a while like some of them kept like I started to see the gumbies appear everywhere like like my little insidious army of demons and then people would sneak up to me and go can I have another Gumby <laughs> so what it is is that people need permission in the workplace to be childlike and playful and it's a great break in a very stressful day and uh, it kind of won everybody over to my you know my side and my support just by being um, by allowing them to have some playtime and being silly so my silliness paid off. I use it all the time uh, when teaching. So I tend to teach kind of controversial topics to undergraduates anyway. So the cults class, you know, the strange and bizarre religions, the weirder the better. Um, and I find that sometimes getting across some of these really unusual worldviews to the students, it helps with a bit of humor. But you have to walk that line where you're not actually making fun of the groups you're trying to talk about but that it makes them a bit more comfortable to sort of start with jokes. So uh, I do it a lot with teaching. I've found it to be a really useful tool. I've personally used this a lot. I, I make myself the butt of the joke. Oh, that's, um, that's key. Always key. Yeah. Because <laughs> if I'm put in a position where I shouldn't be the one in charge or something, you know, but yet I am, then I've got to make a joke of how wrong it is for me to be in charge. And I guess that kind of plays into the whole, you know, acting helpless because the other oh, people yeah. who know how to do it better <laughs> will step in and do it better once they see that, you know, I know that I'm incompetent. That's uh, that's great to getting them on your side because then it's like, well, you know, she can't help being in charge. So let's support her and make her look good because it makes the rest of us look good. And they, there doesn't have to be any ego involved for them. Like they don't have to feel like, ah, oh, this one got the job over me or who does she think she is like you completely eliminate all of that and which is great yeah it's it's sort of like 
Socratic irony, you know, where you pretend to be, pretend to be clueless about a situation to sort of expose other people's irony or to expose other people's ignorance. And I, you know, it's, it, the really important thing about humor, if you're going to use it, you know, levity can sort of calm any situation, but you have to make sure that you are the butt of the joke. Be otherwise, you're just a cruel human being, and no one likes that. No one responds well to cruelty, you know. But if you're making a joke of something, but you are the butt, you must always be the butt of the joke. <laughs> otherwise, you're just a, a monster, and people don't respond well. Yeah, unless uh, they re they might respond with fear. That's about the only True. thing I can think of. If you want to control with fear, um, mm -hmm. just look at that movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Uh, where <laughs> yes. Alec Baldwin absolutely rips everybody in the office a new one, and, and it is mm -hmm. hilariously funny, and he is definitely not the butt of the joke, but yeah. it's just to scare them all into not being the next one that he makes a joke about. That, you know, that kind of reminded me of Full Metal Jacket, mm -hmm. where it's, okay, the guy isn't, I'm talking, of course, the drill sergeant, he isn't the butt of the joke, everybody else is, and yet because he's going down the line and saying something to everybody, everybody else is also in on the jokes, too. Mm -hmm. so right. Yet another way to use it. And they support each other. Mm -hmm. So, it's good team building. <laughs> I do want to go back to something Peggy said about people needing an excuse to be playful. Why is it important to give men permission to do what they want to do? I think traditionally it's because the traditional role of the man is to be the pursuer. So the woman has to kind of lead him a merry chase. I mean, there's an old saying that a woman chases a man until she catches him. And it's that's kind of how it works. It's like she just keeps laying the traps and he's falling into them in the belief that he's after her. I would say that that's, you know, that's where Dr. LeVay was getting his principle. Which Zaftig, have you ever had to give a man an excuse? Uh, certainly. Okay. <laughs> I find, uh, well, first of all, I kind of view it also as a two-way street. Even if the man certainly does his notion of manhood often, for those that respond to that, and most do, this idea of pursuing a woman and as some sort of conquest, absolutely the idea, I mean, depending on if they do it respectfully and correctly, then it just sort of enhances their masculinity, their attractiveness. I've always felt that when I'm dealing with a man that's particularly interested in that kind of thing, most are. I also like to have that idea reciprocated. Not that I'm, like, I have to feel like that I also have an excuse to engage in the naughty behaviors um, in, that, in that same way. I don't necessarily like see myself as the pursuer. That's not quite the role that fits comfortable for me. But I find that when uh, a particular man is this, self-understands in this way, then his entire notion of who he is as a, as, as a man and his notion of manhood is wrapped up to it. So allowing for that means that you're not jeopardizing it. Because as soon as you jeopardize it, then you're sort of jeopardizing his sense of self. And hopefully it's a strong sense of self, that it doesn't, it's not easily done. But still, it's something that you have to view that, that person, that man, as how he feels good about himself and feels good about himself when he's around you. So... I view it in that way 
I also view it as this notion of pursuing as something that's more than just about sex. Uh, to me, it's about you know pursuing deeper levels of intimacy and not in physical and otherwise of intelligence of emotions all those sorts of things so to me uh, the pursuit the chase uh encompasses a, a lot of different areas besides sex that's the most obvious and the most titillating but there's other ways to look at that i don't know i, I kind of took this as the man wants to do something but he's got moral hang-ups or something that's kind of the way i was looking at it and, and not that you guys were wrong so I, I aaron either way you want to look at it do you see this as the laying the traps for the man who's pursuing you or do you see it as you know somebody's got background issues that they <laughs> that you need to to work around i guess it could be either one in terms of like the predator prey dynamic i think that that is all fine and good and and when let's say a man is pursuing a woman and he finally gets what gets her gets what he wants it's very bittersweet you know it's very mixed feelings like pretty much after that it's in the woman's hands and she could so easily ruin it if she's not careful i don't know about laying traps i i totally think you lay traps okay uh, <laughs> I, I think oh, literally I, I think there's actually like you know those bear traps <laughs> Uh, I may or may not. I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny that. <laughs> so what about aggressive men? Have you ever had to deal with a sexually aggressive man or seen a, a woman you know handle a sexually aggressive man really well? I did deal with a sexually aggressive man when I was when I was in college. And um, it was almost, uh, it was unwittingly a dangerous situation that I didn't even realize it at the time. And when I look back at it now, I realize how dangerous it could have been. Basically, I just punched him. Uh, <laughs> and he, he punched me back. I, not super hard or anything, as hard as a man can punch, but he was surprised. He had kind of cornered me in, in a place when we were alone, and um, I just punched him. And he, I managed to, I think I surprised him so much that I was kind of wriggled away and got out of there. But that's the nitty-gritty part of dealing with someone who's just too aggressive. In a social situation, I don't, you know, I think any mature woman should be able to uh, slip away from a guy who's just coming on too strong. Hopefully you can do it without humiliating him. But if that's what it takes, that's what you're going to have to do. Yes, I've, I have some uh, friends I've seen do it very adroitly, but it's usually... They really have to put the guy strongly in his place verbally. And if there's enough witnesses around, he doesn't dare, you know, move on. But again, I really, you know, because I've had the same partner for such a long time, I really don't have much experience with that. I'd have to go back over 20 years to think of an experience where I've had, where it was me that was getting hit on, because like you, I'm in a long-term relationship. But I do work with guys who... If we weren't at work, it probably might get uglier than it does. But because it's, you know, an office setting, it can only go so far, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And I found that just expressing physical disgust is actually what they want to hear. <laughs> you should charge extra for that. Yeah, it's like I, I, I can manipulate them by saying how disgusted I am by them. And they love it and they keep coming back for more. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about the paying extra. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe this says a lot about me, but I, as I read the question, I didn't necessarily 
put a negative <laughs> spin on it. And like I said, that probably says a lot about me, but I don't think that, you know, <laughs> sexual aggression, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. And, and uh, maybe I'm just thick, but I didn't, I didn't take the question as necessarily, <laughs> you know, as a man sort of putting me in, in physical dangers or sexual danger or anything like that. But N- non-consensual danger, we'll say. Right, we'll say that. In that case, I mean, I've, I've, I've handled more than a few. Usually it doesn't to come to physical <laughs> blows, but sometimes it does. I've definitely been in physical altercations with men who've become too handsy, but usually it, it doesn't come to that. Usually uh, something that, that demeans the man is, is enough. I don't find that men cotton too well to being humiliated by women, unless that is explicitly, you know, unless that is what they're looking for, in which case you can pro- usually tell those men and then you switch it up. You know, you flip the script on them and tell them, oh, just how great it is, and then they're not interested anymore. Which Zaftik, you've got to bail me out of this, because I can't be the only one here who's never punched a man. Have you ever punched a man? <laughs> I I have punched a man, actually. <laughs> um, not quite in the circumstances of being feeling like I was being assaulted, but I've just in my youth a lot more. <laughs> a bit more of a brawler. It's a, it's a time I don't necessarily think I should talk about. I mean, oh, let's bars. talk about that. <laughs> but, oh, brawling. Uh, yeah, well, so every time it's, it's sort of happened, it's actually sexually aggressive men are a fairly common theme in my life. I don't know exactly what that says about me. But uh, I've learned to address it in a very different ways. And there's been such a progression, like a, a good positive trajectory on that where in my early days going to clubs at a underage age um, you know 14 I started going to bars I would get really angry and irate I would just I couldn't I just couldn't deal I wasn't I wasn't quite prepared for this overt sexual come-ons touching I felt was the most gross violation some 22 year old touching me (laughs) I even though it's unacceptable anyway at that age I found it was so he was an old man to me so I would push and shove and scream and just handle it very badly as I've matured a little bit my response is usually direct and immediate if I spot that kind of man who's a little too, stands a little too close, says things a little too inappropriately, like he's testing the waters to see how I'm going to react to his overt and inappropriate aggression, I will stop, stare right at him, stay calm, and address it, say something. Maybe not something that humiliates him, maybe not the first time, but (laughs) I give a warning. This is unacceptable. Don't do it again. And if they continue, I will be ruthless. I have no more patience for that kind of thing I find a mature man will know who is responding to his mating signals who isn't. it's that old devil called love gets behind me and keeps giving me that show again stepping back a bit as Aaron mentioned you know sexually aggressive man that's that, That's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> and this brings me to another question, which is, why can a woman achieve more through men than through other women? I mean, LeVay writes that, but then the question might come up, well, shouldn't that be men and lesbians? Because, you know, a woman can attract and, and seduce both heterosexual men and homosexual women. So why focus on men? Or should that have said both men and women? Well, I think that you do have to consider the time that Dr. LeVay was writing that book um, in the 60s. Just watch Mad Men. (laughs) Certainly at that time, 
if you wanted to be successful in the workplace, in a profession, any kind of profession, men held the reins. They, you know, 99% of everything was controlled by them. They were the managers. They were the supervisors. They were the, the doctoral review board. They were everything. So if you wanted to get ahead in those kind of situations, yeah, you had to be charming to men. The women weren't calling the shots. The men were. That's changed a lot. And also, I would say additionally, we know as we mature that a lot of what women do is for other women. <laughs> you know a lot of the times that you're dressing and putting your makeup on and choosing accessories and stuff, you're thinking, you're not thinking about, gee, I hope the boys like my red purse. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're thinking about the chicks like when you're getting mm. yourself ready because really the women... If you want to enter any kind of social circle, if you're in some kind of upwardly mobile situation where there's a social circle of cool people and you really want to be part of them, you know the women are the ones that have to let you in. <laughs> and then the, then the men are, you know, they're, they're fine to accept you once the, the ladies have sniffed you all over. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I would say that he probably wasn't as aware of that as we may be now. And, you know, I think you always I think you have to be charming to everyone now if you want to get ahead and you have to kind of gauge your uh, your game to that. Unless, of course, you're just looking for a boyfriend. That's a different issue. So that kind of goes back to actually the first question I asked. And so when LeVay says, and I apologize, I don't have his exact quote in front of me, but when he says that you can achieve more through men than other women, is that outdated? I would say at this point, professionally, I would say it's mostly outdated. There, I mean, men still dominate the, the managerial workforce out there. I worked for a large corporation. I can tell you that the women were still in the vast minority. So it's, but it's, you know, it's a matter of, of how you're manipulating them. If you're in a, like an administrative professional office, the guys may be attracted to you sexually, but you, you also have to be taken seriously if you want to get ahead and, and get up there with them. They're not going to let you up there if they think you're a bimbo. They might enjoy having you around, but they're not going to let you drive the truck if you don't look like you're up to it. Aaron, let me uh, throw that to you then. Achieving more through men or through women or through both, what do you think? <laughs> well, nothing uh, is more flattering to me than the attention of a lesbian. Because I think <laughs> women are so hard to please. Men are so easy. <laughs> I mean, let's let's be honest. Men are incredibly easy. But women, not so much. And so <laughs> I have, I've had more lesbian bosses than I've had straight male bosses. My boss currently is a homosexual man, which is has thrown a wrench in a lot of my dealings because <laughs> I don't quite know. How, I mean, I don't know. I can't beguile him. He's really incredibly unimpressed by my big boobs. Uh, he doesn't think I'm cute. Nothing I say. He just is nothing. So I love lesbians and I, I, <laughs> I love bewitching lesbians. And as Peggy was saying, they're much more prevalent now as, as bosses. So I, I bewitched the fuck out of those lesbians, and I love it. Like I said, nothing gives me more joy than making a lesbian, you know, happy to see me. <laughs> <laughs> 
It definitely would be a banana in her pocket. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. All right, uh, which Zaftig, did you have anything you wanted to add in on that one? Uh, well, I think uh, sometimes the 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 particular sexual orientation of whoever you're you have to work with is kind of irrelevant if you're really looking at the principle of what Leve is talking about, or at least how I'm reading it, is that you, know, you should be able to apply one way or the other. There's uh, some of the principles. If beguiling doesn't work, and beguiling works with a lot of women who, even if they're not gold star lesbians, I mean, mm -hmm. there's quite a few women that have a lot of, uh, you know, attraction to other women. So I've even found that flirtation can work in that way. But yeah, but if the people you're working around are gay males, then that kind of charm isn't going to work. But there are certainly other methods to get friendly with people so that they offer you opportunities. And if they're not impressed by your big boobs, you have to impress them with your big ideas, I guess. <laughs> Women are different from men, and exploiting this is probably the most central idea of the satanic witch. So since men receive most of their stimulus through their visual cortex, let's talk about exploiting the differences visually. You all have big boobs. I don't. I can't do that. <laughs> so uh, what can a woman do to, yeah, this is a bit of a softball question, but what can a woman do to exploit her femininity visually? <laughs> well, I was thinking that my, my boobs tend to speak for themselves. Shut um, up. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, because I wrote in an applause break there, so I'm glad you guys laughed. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know how how to attack this question any differently than that. I don't know how you don't exploit your physique, okay. whatever it may be. All right, let's 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 take it from what are the don'ts? <laughs> Maybe that's even easier to address. What are the stupid things you see women doing that, oh. that take the power oh. right away from themselves? <laughs> well, now... Wearing their boyfriend's clothes. Please oh, go on, I Peggy. see so many young... These young women, they all have like, interchangeable clothes with their boyfriends. It's like, yeah, you exploit your your femininity visually by looking like a woman. Like, I'm not yeah. saying that means, like, dress like a lady. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you just don't want to look like a guy. So uh, mm. wear clothes that show that you're a woman. Um, I like to think that longer hair makes you look more feminine, but that's sure to come under fire from the short-haired <laughs> women among us. Uh, lipstick, some earrings, you know, just... Just uh, don't don't wear your boyfriend's uh, stupid ski cap and have the same haircut he has. And, you know, you, you should be OK. Oh, but it's so cute when we match. No, <laughs> yeah, if you're under 12. <laughs> what about when your boyfriend wears your clothes? Is that cool? Like, you'll have to ask Josh about that. <laughs> we will have to. Let's get Josh on the mic. <laughs> Does he like your clothes? Well, you might oh, have cool t-shirts. <laughs> I won't. I can't. I, I will not comment on that. <laughs> I'll let him handle that sometime. No, it's it's a joke. It's all a joke. <laughs> Which Zaftig, anything to add? I think we. I think we covered it. We got you don't want to talk about Use your boobs bodies. for a sec? Well, mine are there whether I want them to be part of the conversation or not. They are. Yeah, mine Shout also. out to Simone's boobs. That's, that's right. So it's, it's actually been, well, when you, actually, when you, when you, because you brought it up, um, I have that kind of physique where I cannot hide my femininity. Yeah. I mean, there's just yeah. no, 
I mean, there's certain women that can adopt an androgynous kind of look. I sometimes find that super sexy. I uh, so but, envy that sometimes, yeah. But yeah, but I, I again, I it's about the ones that I find sexy are the ones that are developing their own kind of look. Mm-hmm. You know, that right. they are, they're not just wearing their boyfriend's um, hipster clothing. You see a lot of that uh, in my yeah. hometown. Everybody's hipster. They're all wearing matching uh, plaid flannel and the same kind of boots and baggy <laughs> jeans. And I think, yeah. wow, you know, like develop your own look, um, you know, and enhance whatever you have. So uh, to me, it's about it's not just about the masculine and feminine, but about some kind of individuality because most people yeah. who are just wearing the same clothes are buying from the same stores wearing it the exact same way and not even really thinking about it mm. if you look at there's some great old photographs of marlena dietrich in menswear oh um, yeah so hot I, yeah and because <laughs> her, about her face is magnificent i mean her yeah. you know she might be wearing a suit but she has this beautifully made up Mm-hmm. face you know and it's it's like the male the tailored menswear just is a perfect palette for the this you know gorgeous face she has but also that menswear was tailored to her body mm-hmm. and uh, that was it's a great example of what you said about creating your own look with masculine elements but making it this incredibly sexy feminine thing at the end mm-hmm. so let's talk some more about making your look because not only are we, I mean, we're all individuals, we have our own personalities and styles, but we also live in a particular context. I mean, we have geographical areas where we live in and occupations that we have to go to and family circles and friends that we spend time with and various activities that we take part in. So in terms of the context in which you live, how has that informed your personal style? Well, my professional setting is uh, now uh, an academic one. Uh, But before that, I worked uh, for many years in different types of more or less corporate offices, that kind of thing. And I always found uh, at first, if you're trying to sort of dress too corporate, that it sort of erases what you're erases the kind of natural magic that you can enhance. So in the idea of you're really just going plain kind of pantsuits or skirt and jacket, there's a lot of that. It's really easy to buy. But I always found that if you... Uh, wear certainly office-appropriate clothing, but make things a bit either prettier or sexier, a little bit of satin, a little bit of chiffon. You know, your shoes are kind of important. Um, Mm -hmm. To me, it sort of developed this idea of seriousness because it's a professional setting, but casualness, friendliness of a pretty blouse as opposed to the staunch, you know, shirt and jacket, which I would also wear sometimes. But I find... The city I normally live in, which is uh, Montreal, is incredibly fashionably, uh, you know, fashion focused. So a lot of people mm-hmm. like to wear a lot of very hip things. My style developed quite a bit about my own personal style, about realizing that a lot of the hip fashions didn't fit my body type at all. You know, mm-hmm. um, I got big boobs and a big butt. And any of those clothings that came out in those, you know, really hip stores, if they even had my size, it wouldn't close around the <laughs> chest. And it just looked awkward. So to me, it was about, well, let's look at clothes. Let's find clothes that, one, flatter my body, that make me look voluptuous, but in a nice fitted way, not this awkward, she's spilling out of her clothing way. Yet still professional, because I kind of like this style of contained control. 
because uh, to me it sort of hints that well maybe in a private setting I will be um, the challenge would be to see me in less controlled. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, that's the that's the image I like to convey. Here I am, uh, kept together. Wouldn't you like to see me with wild hair and unkept? Mm. You talk about okay, there's there's what's acceptable, and then you add a bit to it. And one of the things I like to do at work is wear things that are seriously outdated. And the reason I do it is because that gives me an excuse to wear something a little bit sexier than might be appropriate. But it was like mm-hmm. at one time that was right. normal. It's just, so it's not that I'm trying to look sexy. It's that I have no clue about fashion, which again <laughs> plays into, you know, I'm the butt of the joke. But at the same time, I'm getting away with something. <laughs> yeah, well, I have no sense of fashion, so I don't have to try to cultivate that at all. So I live in Baltimore, which is not known for being on the, the bleeding edge of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I work in a library. It's an academic medical library. So it's not like any library most people have ever been in. But it is a library. So I dress a, you know appropriate to a librarian sort of situation. But when I'm not at work, the world around me is dressed like hobos and street urchins. <laughs> so I am not fashionable in any sense of the word. I wear things that flatter my figure because it is not a traditional, you know, it's not, I can't just wear anything. I'm not a clothes hanger as much as I sometimes wish I were. Just throw something on me and out the door I go. But I have to wear things that are cinched at the waist because if I wear something that's not, then I just look like someone's dumpy grandmother. So yeah, Baltimore, it's it's really easy to not look like a, a jerk in Baltimore because everyone does. So um <laughs> <laughs> and the the fact that my library is an academic library is a little laxer. You know, people aren't expecting much from me. <laughs> it's great. I just, so, you know, my fashion sense is just whatever doesn't make me look like someone's nana. So, <laughs> so your, your Baltimore situation is, it's yeah. not the same, but it, it, it does remind me of my Massachusetts situation mm-hmm. where I live. It's not like a dirt road. It's not that rural, but... <laughs> You, nobody would wear high heels around here. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. wouldn't. It's tough enough to pull off a skirt without looking completely odd. You know, it's kind of got to be a denim skirt. That's that's like <laughs> anything. You can't get away with anything more than that. And and maybe a one inch heel, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if it's thick enough, because otherwise you would just like, you know, your, your heels would be digging into the gravel driveway. <laughs> um, and so, everyone would ask you why you were all dressed up. Yeah, yes. Going to church. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you are, highfalutin <laughs> denim skirt? Yeah, so you know, I, I've got the context of the office where I work, and I've got the context of where I live, and I have to have different styles for each. And trying to fit in and stand out at the same time is that's the challenge. So, Peggy, what have you uh, found, or or even seen other people do that you think would make a great example of this? Well, mostly I've just seen failures of it. Um, you know, oh, no. pe- people are just so ready to don the corporate uniform. You know, it's really funny is over the past few years, uh, businesses have adopted this casual Friday thing. And the funny part about it is it's anything but casual. I, you know, the company I worked for immediately, like they, gave it as like this great gift so we can all be casual on friday but here are the guidelines and the things you can't (laughs) wear and then they issued a catalog 
of clothing <laughs> to purchase with the company logo on them that were all acceptable, casual uh, <laughs> items that you could wear to work on casual Friday. And what happened in my office was the, the guys just panicked because they none of them wanted to be wearing the wrong thing. And it became so much more pressure for them than just a shirt and tie. <laughs> and it had the exact opposite effect. Like even now, the big men's clothing chains have casual Friday sections of the store <laughs> to make sure everyone wears the same uniform to casual Friday. Maybe you should be the, the least casual day of the week for you should be casual Friday because you stand out. And you look like the boss. Uh, you go in with your sharpest suit on and your your best, uh, your most expensive tie. You, you, you know, that's for guys, but it would work for women too. Um, it's this is the day to put your hair up in that French twist and have your best little suit on and your uh, pearl necklace and like step right over all the. The broads in the polo shirts for Casual Friday. <laughs> Women in polo shirts completely fascinate me. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> but, um, yeah. I haven't, I, would... I haven't worn a polo shirt since I worked at McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you worked at a big company, you'd be surprised how many are, people are walking around in them on Casual Friday. <laughs> um, it's I like, wore them in the 90s. I wore mostly them the lesbians 90s. wear them. That's a thing. Well, I think it's acceptable if you're going to go out and play polo. <laughs> Which I do. Go golfing. Okay, Ben. Yeah, that's right. Erin has that horsey thing. Uh-huh, that's right. <laughs> well, there's that whole cloak of invisibility that Dr. LeVay talked about. I know this is kind of a left turn from your question. But there are times when you want to blend in, as you said, with your denim skirt and stuff like that. You want to blend in. When I lived in New York, I often just I wanted to sweep through the streets and get to my mm. destination without I didn't want anyone looking at me. I just wanted to get there. And the, mm. the New York uniform is a long black raincoat. As long as you got a long black raincoat on, whoosh, you just go right by. Nobody mm. looks at you twice. And that was kind of like my street battle armor, um, my long black raincoat and my, my black Doc Martens and my black messenger bag and before mm -hmm. you know it you don't even don't even know if you just saw a person or not <laughs> so um and then the thing is when you look the same all the time when you adopt your uniform of of coolness that you're happy with it makes you look good and people get used to seeing you that way when you reverse it mm. they don't even see you sometimes they don't even know you're there mm -hmm. and that really does function as a cloak of invisibility i know my husband if he were to revert to blue jeans and a flannel shirt and walk down the street, I'm sure no one would recognize him. They would be like, Peter wasn't here today. It would work perfectly. I'm hoping nobody recognizes me when I go out with like no makeup on and a hat and like a puffy coat and sweatpants. <laughs> Not that that happens often, but... Uh, I've been recognized with the no makeup, and then I usually get asked if I'm feeling all right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so, the worst. Because I, oh, so I rarely leave the house without like a full face. So like, mm -hmm. if I'm going out without makeup, someone's like, "Oh, are you? Do you have a fever?" Yeah, for I, you. Yeah. I I work on campus now. I work where I live. Basically, I work and li and and live in the same place. So I have to. I can't leave my house unless I'm wearing like 
clothes and and you know and makeup because I at one one time I went to the Seven Eleven and I saw a coworker there and I told him I said this is my worst nightmare you realize like like I look like I'm sick and I should be at home <laughs> in but your it, pajamas like, yeah I, yeah, yeah. Well, I well, that's think- how I. That's how I spend most of the day. Um, you know, I work at home here now and have for the last couple of years. And I don't, like, especially with this brutal winter, I just some days don't really go outside except to walk the dog. Mm. So uh, there days may go by where I, I don't put on makeup because I'm, you know, Peter and I are just here by ourselves and we're working in different parts of the house and stuff. And um, then when I go to put lipstick on, the dog starts to run around. She's like, oh, no. You're leaving. You're leaving. And I'm like, oh, the, the dog notices my, my bad behavior better than, than I even notice it. It's like she's keeping me on my toes. Like it's unusual now for mommy to put her lipstick on. It's like I better get back in the game. I will say anytime I've been asked, oh, are you feeling well? I say no. <laughs> Actually, I'm very ill. You been, might want been, to leave me alone. Been sick all week. Yeah, that's that's exactly why I look this crappy today. Start coughing into your hand. My loving daddy left his baby again. Said he'd come back, but he forgot to say when. Night after night, I'm crying. Daddy, won't you please come home? Daddy, won't you please come home? I'm sorry. Okay, staying on the idea of style for a moment. So, home decorating. How have you used home decorating as an extension of your style or your lesser magic, or have you? I'm uh, so glad you asked this question, because it's actually one of my interests in life, a hobby now, uh, just because of professional work gets in the way of my time. But I relax by doing home decorating projects. I'm the person that will uh, drag a beat up old dresser down the street that someone left on the curb. Mm -hmm. I will lift it up and drag it home to sand it, refinish it, uh, if it has some sort of characteristic. It's part interest, part necessity. You know, before I started making any money at all, it was the only way I could really furnish my apartment. So, uh, but I didn't want to just have junk. So I would always sort of have to beautify them because I wanted my home to be very much my sanctuary. I view my apartment as my respite from the world. That's where I can just relax. I don't, uh, and if my surroundings were chaotic, if it's too dirty or too messy, it starts to really affect my own, my personality. So it's always been such an important thing for me that I, I put a lot of effort into it. And I always find it fun. Like, and I change my decor relatively often. I've painted many times different apartments. Uh, I like finding unusual things. I like scouring home decorating magazines and those TV shows. It's a bit of an obsession. I find because it can affect my personality so much and how I approach the world that it's become also fun, not just a necessity, but it's really fun for me to do that. Uh, And uh, I'm aware of how it does present to other people when they come over as an extension of myself. Here's, here's my home. This is one of the most precious things about me. So respect it. <laughs> and, and if I'm inviting you there and showing you there, it actually probably it means something about what I, what I think about that person. Hmm. Don't like my apartment? Let me show you the other side of the door. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Erin, um, what about you? Any uh, interior decorating skills? 
no skills, no, definitely <laughs> not. Um, but I do, I like the idea of the total environment. I always have. Uh, and my house is kind of creeping up on that, like a total environment. But I mean, my home is very much an extension of myself, as is my office at work. I can't go somewhere and not put my stamp on it. So our home is full of toys and books and music. Like I need to have these things around me. <laughs> but as far as decorating, I don't think it has any sort of style necessarily. I think it's, you know, it's full of stuff, but it's nice stuff and it's arranged nicely. And we have beautiful cases, glass cases that house our toys and our perfumes and, you know, our records and all of that. I like to present I, I like my, I wear my interests on my sleeve and my house is sort of an extension of that. I'm surrounded by my stuff because it makes me happy, you know, <laughs> and people tend to, you know, when they see come into my home, they tend to like it, but it doesn't, it definitely doesn't have any sort of style. And I have, like I said, no skills necessarily as far as home decorating. I would definitely never be able to charge money as a consultant in that arena, but we like it. Josh and I have found a balance he has his things, I have mine, and they fit very nicely together, luckily. I really don't think I could say it any better than uh, which Zoftig said it. It's uh, ex That's exactly how we approach, how I approach uh, my home and, and all the, the way we've decorated it and the stuff we've put in it, the old furniture, the the um the weird color paints the the restoration of this old victorian house it's just a complete labor of love it is a total extension of who we are and like Aaron, it's full of our stuff like we couldn't possibly live without our toys and our <laughs> books and all of our recordings and the weird objects we've put together over the years and like i like to say um I'm I'm a good Irish girl and, and I must have my things about me, and, and uh, I'm I'm like you know like my grandma I had to have my my china where I can see it and my, you know my my nice silver and and that's just something that's like in my blood I guess my grandmother was a maid, and she uh, as were many Irish women from her generation and uh, they learned what all the the good things were by taking care of other people's and then they did their best to get the same kind of things for their homes and, and have that pride of, of home ownership. And, you know, I definitely have it too. Um, when you come in here, you see us, like you see, mm. you see how we work, you see how we play, you see the things mm -hmm. that we value. I mean, I have a, the tiki bar, I have a, an entire room decorated with all my cool tiki stuff. And it's a total shrine to my obsession <laughs> with, with barware and, Hawaiiana and and tiki things and and my dear friends have all helped me by bringing things from all corners of the world to help me decorate it and when I'm in there it, it's almost a ritual in itself when I'm in there because I I go in there and I you know with all my microfiber cloths and I go up and down and dust my stuff and mm. rearrange it and I can have a great time in there mm. without even making a drink or having a single guest although those things are fun too so <laughs> That's a complete extension of me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the surest way to lose a man you have bewitched is to worry about it. <laughs> now, I am a born worrier. <laughs> if the worst thing you can do is worry about it, how do you stop worrying about worrying if you're naturally a worrier? <laughs> well, I am naturally a worrier, and I agree completely. I'm, a, I'm the 
a type of obsessive mind that just cannot not worry about something. <laughs> um, it's the way I prepare for life is by worrying about it. <laughs> um, so I think the trick for someone like me might be to worry, worry all you want, but just do it quietly. <laughs> do it internally. <laughs> worry as much as it, as you need to worry. Because I need to worry sometimes. Because sometimes shit won't get done unless I wake up at 3am and, and go, oh, Jesus, what have I done? Like, what and what do I need to do to fix it? Um, so worrying isn't necessarily a bad thing. It is, of course, you know, everything in moderation. But, you know, if you're going to worry about a situation, do it quietly. Do it to yourself. Don't express your concern. The real goal is to not look desperate. You know, you can worry without showing desperation. It's not, uh, what was the quote? Like, something, like, it's not the act of sexual submission that causes a man to leave you but the desperation you project, right? Do, do whatever you have to do, and but just don't ever let on that you are concerned. <laughs> I would say that's really good advice. I can't tell you not, just don't worry, you worrier. Um, <laughs> stop that sick behavior. Um, but um, schedule your worrying. I think that's a good idea. You must worry. Give yourself a little time every day that you're going to worry about that <laughs> and uh, maybe have it coincide with something that you do for uh, your personal uh, edification of uh, some beauty regimen or something. I'm going to, well, while I do my nails and make myself look better, I'm going to worry about whether my <laughs> husband is still interested in me because this is the best time to do it. And I'll put a little more effort into my uh, my nail buffing. Yeah, I, I would say that there's really, if you're a worrier, there's nothing you can do about it, but you can keep it from invading your life and influencing your behavior. So I'd say she gave you some really good advice there. Some people meditate. I worry. I panic. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> I like I like to tell women, too, like women that are very, like, insecure about their partners are always worried, you know, worried that – Oh, is he, is he, you know, is he cheating on me as the, this or that? And I'm like, you know, I like to think that my husband is a pretty intelligent man. And if he wants to hide something from me, he's going to hide it. And yeah. he's not going to, you know, it, he's not like the doofy, uh, you know, <laughs> Darren on Bewitched. Like, oh, my goodness, Samantha <laughs> found my, you know, lipstick on my collar. Like, that's just not going to happen. And, mm -hmm. and sniffing around after stuff all the time like that is just going to make you look stupid. Mm -hmm. it's, it's only going to make your situation worse. Like I, I, so I don't, you know, I would never do any of that because I got a feeling that if he wanted me to find it, I would find it. And if <laughs> I, I never will. So that's I actually all. think that's a, a really good point. And a lot of the times where I've sort of seen that happen with couples I know, it's um, uh, they did, they kind of wanted to be caught if there was something going on. They were cowards. They weren't brave enough to actually have an honest conversation. So they do something that hurts their partner that essentially ends the relationship, either immediately or after a long, drawn-out something. Um, I find the my best answer for worrying for myself is to get busy. I have stuff to do. My work life is pretty heavy. So I found that it's easier for me to channel this energy, because it, it certainly happens to me, into work. And then I feel like, regardless of what happens in my personal life, worrying about some guy, here I am working actively at something for myself so that 
this guy and whatever's happening between us becomes less important. It's still important, but I find that when men see that, they respond positively to it because it makes them feel like for a second, oh wait, I'm, I'm not the most important thing in her life right now. Let me work a bit harder to make, you know? <laughs> exactly, so, exactly, yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. So strategy. to me, it's about having your own life, making sure you have your own product, own projects, own things to do. And you can't really stop it, I don't think. Rare is the woman who never worries at all about that, about those things. But you can, yeah, channel it, focus it, schedule it. There's, <laughs> there's certainly methods to address what's happening. What I like about um, Witch Softic's advice is that um, at the end of the day, even if he does dump you, hey, you know, you just put all this effort into something and now you're a rock star. So move on. Or it might be the sound of your hello, that music I hear. I get misty the moment you're near. What advice do you have? perhaps based on your own experiences or with somebody you know, what advice do you have for a witch who is thinking of changing her voice? I want to hear Simone's answer because she's got the sexiest voice I've she ever heard. does. Okay, we all want to sound <laughs> like witch saftic, so... Yeah, because oh, I sound like yeah. a like an angry dude whenever I talk, <laughs> and I would love to not sound like that anymore. <laughs> I can tell you... Well, I don't know how much you actually can change your voice so much, but uh, I can tell oh, you so that you're, you're just naturally sexy sounding. No, <laughs> actually, no, I'm not. But I'll tell you how I sort of developed at least a more even way of speaking. Uh, one, the, the lesser reason is that I actually have a very slight speech impediment. Um, I, I, I tend to slur my words when I talk too quickly. And when I was younger, like all you heard was this long slur of inarticulated <laughs> syllables. So I had to sort of work on that. And the most important reason it's going to sound maybe bizarre is that I didn't want to be like my mother. So <laughs> my mother has a very loud, shrill voice, um, a very powerful voice, actually. She's, you know, when she was younger, she was a um, musician and a singer. And, uh, but still, like, so as a, as a child, you know, like you kind of, your mother's voice when she's complaining is a special kind of irritant. And I wanted oh, yeah. to not sound like that. So it was much more reactionary to me to sort mm. of develop a voice you know, a tone at least that didn't get too shrill too quickly because I always understood my mother's <laughs> voice as that way. So a little bit of, you can read a lot, a lot about me psychologically. In terms of I relate to I, that I, so deeply though. <laughs> I think many of us do. Uh, you know, we, yeah. we tend to, like we have sort of these childhood type of triggers. So one mm. of the reasons that I, I did want to sound even and mm. I also speak a lot in conferences, uh, in front of the class, even just in class. If you don't develop a way to make your voice sound authoritative, and I don't mean domineering, but just that sometimes, especially women, I've noticed this quite a bit in seminars. Um, I you know, attend all these different types of workshops where people are discussing ideas. And even in these small workshops, there's this tendency for women, especially if they have softer voices, to not be listened to. And it has nothing to do with volume because the room is small. So to me, it was a way to counteract this idea that 
women aren't heard. And so that when I speak, I want to be heard, not just, you know, by volume, but I want them to understand that I have something to say, I have something worthwhile to say, and you better respect me by listening to it. So it's, it's part of developing also this professional persona. Well, it works. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Does it indeed. Uh, Peggy, anything to add on that? I would, uh, I guess in the, uh, the, the mechanics of changing your voice, I would uh, recommend that where humans are such imitative creatures, especially with speech. If you hang around with people from another place, you, were, you will begin to speak the way they do. It's just unconscious, natural human behavior. So I would say if you want to change your voice, I would work and record something in your own voice the way you want to speak and play it and listen to it all the time. And after a while, I think you'll start to get in sync with yourself and start talking that way more and more. That would be just a little mechanical uh, trick I would try if you seriously want to change the way you talk. I used to, you know, I grew up in New York and I had a heavy New York accent. It still comes out sometimes. I tend to, to talk the way people around me talk. So if I'm back with my cousins or friends from the city, it'll all start to come out again. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I, I just think it's like it's an ear thing. Um, you, you tend to speak the way people speak around you. So try, yeah. uh, try just copying the thing that you want to be. Erin, anything to add to that? Yeah. Well, you know hire a voice coach find a someone who gives singing lessons and to take some lessons about how or you know like peggy you know i grew up in new england so when i when i go back there when i meet someone i'm all fucking wicked sick yeah boy. <laughs> you know it's it comes out and that's just bound to happen so so what i do is i just listen to uh Every episode of Nine Cents that Simony is on, I try to emulate that, 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 that sexy, sexy whisper voice. Am I doing it right? <laughs> Not bad. I'm so bad at that. It sounds to me like Simony has also, in addition to having a, um, a lovely speaking voice, she's also uh, harnessed what I call uh, the elements of the mommy voice. Oh. which is the voice that you use to make that feeling go up people's spine so they sure. go oops shit i gotta shit. listen <laughs> yeah that, that, uh, that thing that you can like sometimes will project it over countertops and stuff in stores you know where i don't feel like anyone's <laughs> paying attention to me i'll be a like, young lady i've been waiting <laughs> for service over here and like you can just see everyone's shoulders hunch up near their ears like oh no <laughs> He's using the weirding way. It's, it's actually the yeah. mommy voice. That's true. Well, the, that developed uh, by circumstance. I was a, a nanny for a decade. Uh, there you so go. So you, you got to learn. You got to learn how to stop a, a tantrum like right now because it will never end unless you use. I used to call it the big voice. I was like, don't, mm. and sometimes just even the threat of the big voice. Like, don't make me use the big voice. <laughs> you better put that thing down now. And uh, I, interestingly, was a 
almost surprising to me how well it did work with adults and in a <laughs> slightly different tone. I mean, you can't use it as overtly, but it was that same principle. Like, I'm going to change the way I'm speaking right now so that you're going to respond to the different volume, the different intensity, and you're going to pay attention because it's important. And they do. They, it's a physiological thing. So sure. it's a... Uh, I can't, I mean, it doesn't, you have to be paying attention for me. I have to be paying attention to what's happening around me for me to use it effectively. I have to be sort of on alert, but when I do pull it out, it, it usually works. I don't know if any of you do any kind of psychic readings, because that's another thing that comes up in the Satanic Witch. LeVay gives a formula for psychic readings where you first flatter the mark, then give them cause for concern, and then give them a means for escape. Why do you think that's so effective? First off, do any of you try to use this either as a professional psychic or just in conversation to manipulate people? And then, you know, have you ever used this formula and found it effective? Uh, I don't do psychic readings, but I do employ the elements of cold reading into my um, exchanges with with strangers or new people. Or, um, and that's definitely what this is about. And the, the, I can tell you that the reason you start with flattery is because you immediately gain the confidence of the subject because if you're telling them good things about themselves, then you must be a genius. <laughs> um, you must know everything if you know how cool I am. I've been waiting for someone to discover it for years. So um, I, I would say that that's where you go with that. The cause for concern, of course, is to kind of keep them under your power so that you can offer them your wisdom. Then they, you have the meeting out of your hand because they want to believe they're special. They want to believe that no one really understands them except you. you know, like you're one of the few people who's perceived their great qualities and their hidden depths. And then, you know, to, to keep them around, you have to give them a reason to keep listening. Yeah, I, I use this combination when I do performance reviews, actually. And it, it does, you know, you start with telling them, you know, you're absolutely the best at this. I Nobody's done this one better. And you, but, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this one thing. And, you know, if mm -hmm. you could just turn this around and do this part a little bit better, everything will be going great. Um, I actually recommend that for uh, for teachers, too, when you're grading uh, papers. I I don't do it because uh, I find it takes too much time. You have uh, 100 students. And, you know, I'm not going to do that for every paper. But I do tend to do it kind of collectively as a group. Like, oh, you guys are really responding to this. It would be nice if <laughs> just to sort of, uh, but I could see how, uh, you know, we had more one-on-one, -on -one, it would be a lot more effective because it's much more directed to the person. Erin, how about you? Do you ever pass yourself off as a psychic? Hell no. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, my question about this was uh, the means of escape. Like I get, I understand the flattery. I understand the cause for concern because you like to keep people on their toes you know anyway anyone who's comfortable is not um res very responsive you know they don't people who are comfortable they're not concerned anymore about uh the relationship that you're having but the means of escape like i would like to hear somebody else's opinion about or, or give you know an example of like a means of escape well okay i can um uh, give you an example so like i gave somebody a performance review where they were not responding to customers in a timely manner. And I told them, you know, I also see that you're not documenting what you're doing 
in the correct format and putting in all the details. And, you know, if you put in all these details, I think that would solve the problem. I think, you know, you're just, you're falling oh. behind on your work because you have to keep double checking what you did. If you had documented it the first time, you'd be able to keep up with it. So that's mm -hmm. sort of the means of escape to get them to document so that they're fixing the bigger problem. You're offering a solution, essentially. You're presenting them with a problem. And that the whole formula is kind of a, it's like a, the dramatic arc, you know, like this mm -hmm. makes you feel good. Then there's tension and then there's like a resolution, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's sort of this mini experience, micro experience um, that if you're, if they're stuck feeling attacked, because if you've just flattered them, then told them something that you didn't like, then yeah. you're gently suggesting, oh, look here, conveniently, I have a solution <laughs> right here. Look, and, and you can do it so easily. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a way of not putting that person so much on the spot that they're so uncomfortable they don't uh, ever resolve the problem. Yeah, actually, that when you, I, I can't think of exactly how you phrased that, but you said sort of a, a, a character arc or a story arc. Mm -hmm. And that like shot off a million different neurons in my brain when mm -hmm. you said that because, you know, we're all storytellers. That's how we live our lives is we, you know, we're constantly building a story of ourselves. So somebody starts flattering you, they start creating a story of yourself, you know, a little sub story. Mm -hmm. And then they throw in this problem. Well, a problem needs a resolution in order for mm -hmm. the story to have a happy ending. So yet yeah. another reason for you to go for that escape route that they give you is so that that, yeah. that little bit of your story can have a happy ending. I think it is so effective that that formula is so effective because it is so satisfying. You're presented with, oh, you know, first of all, you're flattered. Everybody loves that. Then you're presented with a problem and then you're presented with a resolution to the problem. And that is some there is something very deeply and innately satisfying about that. Yeah, I think the most um, effective also is when you're if um, if you're doing a cold reading of someone that you have to understand what the resolution works best for them. That's. Mm -hmm. It's kind of been the trickiest part for me. I know that it works uh, most effectively for me, where I've had professors give me a critique, as, we, as academics, we absolutely take critique. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, really good at taking it uh, most of the time. But the, t the times that I've been uh, really responsive, like excited about actually <laughs> doing it, is when they made sure to phrase it in a way that it was my responsibility. Yes. Like that, yes. <laughs> that it just made me feel like, I could do this. I'm a yes. brilliant yeah. young scholar with all kinds of ideas thank you professor you know that they made it seem like this is me tapping into my potential you know and so it's, they it's led me on that little building. story mm -hmm. yeah they led me on that little story also and i was i went along with willingly but it, it totally worked so but not everything works i mean i've had you know in discussion with colleagues that sometimes that pressure of it, you can do it the responsibility is yours some people don't respond to that you know, they feel like the pressure is on. So you have to sort of judge what kind of resolution you're you're suggesting to them would work best. necessarily voodoo dolls, but dolls we might use in a, uh, a destruction ritual. LeVay describes making dolls for curses, and he describes the destruction ritual itself in the Satanic Bible. Now, the two to me kind of go together, but they're described in separate books. And that, to me, almost seems to indicate that, you know, maybe a woman will have more success with a doll, and that's why that's in the Satanic Witch versus being part of 
uh, the destruction ritual in the Satanic Bible. So the question for you is, are dolls more important for women to use? And are there any personal touches that you've given dolls or that you know of other women giving dolls? And I'm kind of going with the whole thing, you know, it involves sewing and women, that's, that's a commonplace skill for women. Um, or it might involve baking, and that's another commonplace skill for women. So any personal touches that you've given dolls or that you've heard of other women giving dolls to make a ritual more ne- meaningful for you or for this other witch? Well, I think dolls are more effective ritual tools for women because we grew up with playing mm-hmm. with dolls. We we played with them. We created them, which is the same thing women do when they give birth. They're making this other creature. It's kind of a a natural thing for for a woman, a little more natural than it is for a man. Um, we grew up, you know, personifying our dolls, whether they were babies or Barbies or, uh, you know, just little pals that we always had in our pockets. So it's easy for us to work with them, and it's an instant recognition. It's like, okay, this doll is my boss. And that there's no problem with for women to immediately, like, get into that uh, mindset. It works perfectly. As for personifying, uh, I think that the best thing you can do in a ritual sense is to uh, to add a little bit of that person's um, something they own, something they touched, a photograph. I know I did a, a destruction ritual a long time ago and I, I baked my uh, voodoo doll <laughs> and I made sure I put uh, a penis on it and I, that was the first thing that I ripped off and chewed up. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I would recommend anything that, that cranks your, your, your yank because <laughs> you're in that room alone. Like it's mm-hmm. you and, and you have to, uh, you have to do what works for you. And you, um, <coughs> if, if some object or smell or taste reminds you of that person, and transfers that, and that's what you use. Which Zaftig? I actually didn't uh, play a lot with dolls when I was younger. And not, um, uh, it, it wasn't, it, it was just a combination of um, not really, my mother didn't buy us a lot of toys. It just wasn't, we were you children were, that. You were too busy beating people up. Right. <laughs> a little bit. Um, Do you I have brawling, o- older brothers? Running with the boys. Yeah, I have an older brother. And okay. Yeah, me too. That's why. <laughs> and uh, and so I got a lot of his hand-me-down stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, which were more quote-unquote boys' toys, and um, most of them weren't like. And so I never had a soft toy. Like I never had a plush toy. <laughs> and I, although I did have a, a couple dolls here and there, but they weren't a big part of my play life uh, because I also spent a lot of time outside. That was my mother's mm-hmm. answer to hyper children. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. go outside and get tired. Uh, so I found that, but I do like the idea of effigy. So I do like some sort of uh, semblance of the person. I tend to draw things and then either rip up the picture or, or, or stab it. <laughs> so that's my more favorite, you know, I like a, I like a physical action. I might try dolls. I think that might be kind of interesting. It just, uh, it, it's not part of, I don't immediately associate my childhood playtime with it, but it would probably be quite effective. Erin? Yeah, I'm this, it, oddly, I couldn't agree more. I had an older brother. I didn't have dolls necessarily. I, I do remember the only tantrum I ever threw in a Toys R Us was over a Cabbage Patch doll, but... <laughs> 
that yeah. was that was an oddity that was you know an anomaly in my life because i did i play with my brother's toys i wanted to be my brother I, every you know my whole life has been me trying to be my older brother so i never i never played with dolls i hated doll i didn't understand barbie i didn't i didn't understand it beyond the like storytelling so you know we would blow Barbies up with firecrackers and you know we would set them on fire we would melt them they were that you know dolls were used to that end so you know I had to get some good training in just burning effigies as a kid but I didn't assign that meaning of course when I was a kid but so dolls don't mean that much to me though you know we have this the case of like the enculturation of girls we we play with dolls that's what girls do because it's you know we are parodying sort of the, the childbirth thing like the, what we're made to do is create babies and take care of them but I never had that instinct <laughs> and I don't I don't have that experience so I think that if if it is true that women have more success with dolls it is probably because of that you know that either that maternal instinct or that enculturation of girls to adore dolls and adore babies and all of that as Peggy was saying talking about you know you bake a, bake a gingerbread man and then chew his dick off and, you know that's just that's what you do so yeah. I'm totally gonna try that totally, <laughs> gonna ging, gingerbread man with a giant dick and then you chew it up and spit it out and or shit it out tomorrow <laughs> so if you're doing naughty, forbidden, and nasty things, not just to Barbie dolls, but in general. <laughs> no, if, seriously, if you, you, I mean, we're, we're all hopefully doing things that would be considered taboo, um, would be naughty, forbidden, nasty things to the general public. And yet, if we're doing them all the time because we don't have these hangups, how do we remain aware of them? Because if you desensitize yourself... Well, I, I guess I will ask the question, why is it important not to desensitize yourself into feeling that this behavior is normal? <laughs> I'm actually a little unsure how to answer this question. Because mm -hmm. uh, first, uh, I was, when I'm thinking about it, I, I'm wondering then if I'm really doing terribly perverted, uh, forbidden things, taboo things. Because uh, to me, it feels like there's nothing new under the sun between, you know, what people can do to each other. Um, it's all been done before. We may think we've got something new and interesting, but we really don't. Uh, but I guess that goes, that ties into part of this uh, desensitization, desensitization part. I don't ever feel desensitized. Now, maybe that's just my particular experience, but I always feel a little bit um, shy and a, a little bit embarrassed embarrassed not out of shame but just because it, it, it you know I get hot in the face <laughs> I have that kind of natural ability to so it always feels like a little bit naughty and taboo even if I don't feel that it's naughty or taboo so it just I think that if all you're ever doing is exposing yourself to say visual stimuli like if all you ever do at home is watch porn and then you cannot actually relate to someone in an intimate way and that's what you want i mean if all you want to do is watch porn at home and that's your thing great but if that's what's preventing you from expressing some kind of intimacy even temporary intimacy with someone then to me it's about choosing not to do that you know you'd have to because if whatever you want <laughs> If over uh, being overstimulated is preventing you from getting from being stimulated, then your choice would be then to not expose yourself as much to that kind of stimuli. Uh, to me, that just sort of makes sense. Uh, 
um, because you'd be impeding on your ultimate goals. Uh, unless all you ever want to do is sit at home and watch weird porn on the internet. <laughs> that's, you know, good good for you if that's what you want. But um, I've you. always found that real people, <laughs> you're welcome. I appreciate I'm your blessing you on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have somebody's blessing now to just sit at home and watch porn. <laughs> when I wrote the question, I was actually thinking more in terms of, you know, other people have these religious hang-ups where they think things that we would consider you know why wouldn't you do that well you know um well like say you were in a polyamorous relationship i don't i don't know of any saint satanist who would have an issue with somebody being in a polyamorous relationship but how do you stop yourself from thinking something like that is normal when it's normal for you day to day but it's not normal for society that's kind of where i was going with it uh, hmm. i don't know because I, I guess I'm not very good at that because I do tend to have a kind of solipsistic failing in that I sometimes forget the impact that we have on the world when we're out among the norms. And I guess that's kind of the, it would be the same thing if you were polyamorous and you kind of forget that other people find that completely shocking. And, and, and I fall into that sometimes. I mean, we're, you know, sometimes out together, several of us and, Everybody's wearing black and we're picking up the skulls in the Halloween display. And we, we forget that other people are like starting to look at us like, what the hell? Um, <laughs> and that's a little bit of a, a failing because we're just out in the world, you know, trying to enjoy ourselves. But um, as for trying to keep it shocking and somehow titillating to yourself, I don't know. I, I really I would have I have a problem with that. I, I really don't. I don't know how to answer that except to make always make things special and to keep things never to take things lightly to stay ritualized in a lot of ways remember that what you're doing is outside the depth and breadth of of many other human beings and that's what makes you special and different I don't know. I guess it's a it's a very internal thing. I, I really don't I, I don't have any quick answers for that. Well, I mean, I asked the question, why is it important not to desensitize yourself uh, into feeling your mm -hmm. behavior is normal? But maybe it isn't. Maybe it's not important at all. I mean, it's something I try to do just because I find it enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But that may be just me. Erin, <laughs> mm -hmm. did uh, you have or I'm sorry, Peggy, go ahead. I, I would just, uh, yeah, I, I see what you where you, what you did with that, and um, I guess that there's some of us who um, we're we're kind of living in our own world. Uh, we create that world, and as to the extent that we can manage to keep all the balls in the air without surrendering any of it, that's what we do. And I think that's where a little bit where, like I said, where the solipsism comes in. Mm. Sometimes we're out when we're out in among the masses, we don't realize how like our kind of offbeat appearance or interests or the questions we ask um, may uh, may impact on them. It's fine as long as it doesn't impede me from getting my fresh eggs or my uh, like specialized item that I'm looking for. I don't really care. Erin, did you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, well, just that it's important not to desensitize yourself into thinking that these feelings are normal. The only reason you would do that is because then it loses its power. You know, if I were going to give you a one-line answer, <laughs> try to put it as succinctly as possible, I think you, you don't desensitize yourself to these situations because then 
it, it strips it of all its power. I will say, um, Peggy, what you bring up, that does actually remind me of, you know, I was talking to somebody recently about the Adams Family versus the Munsters. And the, mm. the biggest difference, I, well, besides the Munsters kind of sucked as a show, but... <laughs> here, here. But, but the other biggest difference was the Munsters were always trying to fit in, and the Adams right. Family didn't even seem aware that they didn't. Right. Yes, yeah. that's and, true. And I will give you that the way you describe it, where, you know just keeping all the balls in the air, you wouldn't come across the fact that you didn't fit in. So I, I give you props for that. <laughs> I think self-awareness is incredibly important to us functioning as, as Satanists and as human beings. You know, you have to be self-aware. And if you're just a monster and you're just like, doy, doy, like <laughs> everyone conform to who I am instead of the Adams fan who's just like, hey, you know, we are who we are. We are aware of who we are. Yeah, um, we're Adamses. Yeah. <laughs> there are probably ideas in this book that many readers would balk at. The doggy bag comes to mind, as does what I like to call the flasher ritual, which is, you know, the end of the book there they describe going out with just your coat on. Um, so what would you say to any would-be witches who are skipping over some some of the more gutsy parts of this book? <laughs> well, I, don't, be an, don't be a pussy. Don't be an asshole. Like, <laughs> just go try something. Take a chance. Like, what? what's the worst that could happen? Well, I suppose, you know, if you went out of the house without clothes on, the worst that could happen is that you, I don't know, be raped or arrested. But um, take a chance. You know, I, I do think that the, that term doggy bag could use some tweaking. <laughs> but uh, that's, well, semantics but yeah you know don't just try it give it a shot what's barring sort of illegality and that sort of thing like don't obviously don't do anything illegal but okay try it wear your pantyhose without panties <laughs> give it, i swear <laughs> to god it's it's liberating <laughs> uh which saftig uh i agree with the sentiment of uh, <laughs> taking risks about that kind of thing. I find also just anecdotally that a lot of women I know have their own secret little thing that they think is daring and which I may not find particularly shocking or daring at all, but to <laughs> them. And over the years, I've sort of accumulated all kinds of little stories about like, oh, well, I once did this, you know, didn't wear panties with a skirt. And they just felt it was so naughty. Or even just, you know, small little things about flirting with someone that they shouldn't, they felt they shouldn't have flirted with. Or uh, So to me, I think that women are always seeking these kinds of avenues to express naughty kind of forbidden behavior. And uh, the would-be witch probably uh, goes a bit further in the way that um, being a bit more gutsy. And uh, like Erin said, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, you, even if you embarrass yourself or something like that, there, to me, if you're not actually trying, then you just sort of, um, you'll regret that. You regret not flirting with the, the person you kind of wanted to at least, at least just dip your toe in. <laughs> you never know what could happen. Uh, and if you start to view it as, not a rejection like it doesn't work out like I stopped uh, viewing men who didn't who didn't respond to me uh, as a rejection and more like 
all right. Like there's plenty of other men that did. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just more, uh, I'm a, I, I never viewed it as a personal mark on me. So any type of naughty kind of flirtatious behavior, I enjoy that for me, not because mm-hmm. the man is the goal. I've always felt that it gave me such a high and a buzz. So mm-hmm. um, it was about a, a personal ritual uh, for that enhanced my own feeling of sexual, actri- act, um, sexual attractiveness, but not necessarily for mates, just as a, as a, as a feeling, as a, as a magical feeling to go about the world remembering this kind of keeping that idea in mind that I can be naughty. I'm holding secrets for myself and they have power. Awesome. All right. Uh, Peggy. <laughs> well, I would say in terms of the book, the, the measure of how effective this ritual might be for you is, is in your response to the very idea of it. If it's so shocking to you or so unacceptable, to you. Um, I think that if you throw that off and just try it anyway, that would make it that much more powerful. Because you yourself are are shocked by your behavior and you'd be internalizing and then radiating that uh, energy out, I would say, especially with the, uh, the flasher ritual. The fact that you're so uncomfortable with it and so <laughs> Uh, you know, just, oh my goodness, what is this crazy behavior? I think that would really have a, a, that would give it that much more power. So that's it for this special episode of Nine Cents. I hope you enjoyed it. Adam and the other contributors to this podcast would love to hear from you. Please visit the website, ninecentspodcast.com, and send your correspondence to info at ninecentspodcast.com. Let Adam know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for Nine Cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download this show on Mondays via Adam's RSS feed found at ninecentspodcast.com. We are also on Last FM, Stitcher, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to Nine Cents via iTunes by searching for Nine Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and/or comment. If you would like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. The only way this podcast is going to continue is if you tell a friend. Share Nine Cents with your friends, your enemies, your minions, your lackeys, your haters, your stalkers, and even the spotty-faced chick who bags your groceries. <laughs> Let's build this podcast together. Help spread the word. Once again, thank you for joining me, your stand-in hostess, Jessie, being joined by... Peggy Nadramia. Which Zaptic? Aaron. Until we meet again, hail Satan. Hail Hail Satan. Satan.